we have no locks and our classroom doors don't lock. So then we were all like super weirded out. But my class is towards the back. So as soon as like that happened, like since the doors didn't lock, I went to my car, which was parked right at the back. And I heard one shot and I've been seeing like a lot of cops going back and forth. All right, police have not confirmed any arrests or injuries. They are expected to give an update later today. I'm Nicole Burley. Thank you so much for watching. We'll give you a quick look at our primetime lineup before The Hill starts right now. All right, day date has now been set in former President Trump's 2020 election interference case. The federal judge brushed aside Trump's argument and requests for a two-year delay. All right, what's the former president have to say about this? Plus, as one of Trump's GOP rivals, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis leaves the campaign trail to deal with two different crises in his state, a racially motivated shooting, the other an impending hurricane. And now, his handling of both of these issues will test his candidacy. Plus, a spike in COVID cases brings the return of mask mandates in schools. Will mask mandates work any better than they did the last time? And... Violent protests erupt at an anti-migrant rally in New York over the weekend. Punches were thrown between demonstrators and counter-protesters. How do we get here? And how do we move on from here? The Hill on News Nation starts right now. All right, the Monday before Labor Day week in Washington. Most people are not in Washington, but we are here for you, the viewers. I'm Leland Vitter, joined by a great panel today. Chris Steyerwalt, News Nation political editor, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Julia Manchester, national political reporter for The Hill. Michael Starr Hopkins, Democratic strategist. Bill McGinley, a former Trump White House cabinet secretary. All right, and we start with that date March 4th, 2024, uh, for President Trump's trial here. This is the Jack Smith election interference case. Chris Steyerwald, uh, should we take note that March 5th is Super Tuesday? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that's a real humdinger of a date. Um, Basically, the way to think about it is the Republican nominating process at that point will be about uh, 10% done. Um, Because of the way the calendar works out, there's going to be a couple of early primaries uh, and then a long gap until South Carolina. So this would fall between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. And it's it's crazy to think of. um, But if this is what we get, if this is where we are, uh, Trump will very literally be litigating his way into attempting to litigate his way into the nomination. It's wild stuff. And where does that put Trump in terms of how does he balance litigating, uh, you know, in the courtroom, but also being on the campaign trail? I mean, so far we saw last weekend his campaign raised seven million dollars, over seven million dollars off of this mugshot alone. So does this in a way help him um, and go against conventional wisdom or does he miss out by not being in some of these major primaries? And most importantly, where does it put the people running against him? Mm -hmm. Trump keeps consuming all of the oxygen in this race. Now you put a trial date right before Super Tuesday, every question is going to be related to Donald Trump election interference in this uh, Bill, trial case. You, there's been a long-standing tradition within the Department of Justice. How much tradition matters anymore in American politics is up for debate. But the tradition is you don't get involved in elections. You Correct. do everything possible to, to not be involved and not even have the appearance of involvement or, or having indictments around elections. What do you make of the government? of the Department of Justice being willing to 
have a trial start the day before Super Tuesday, and Jack Smith and his team not going, well, Your Honor, um, given that it's a day before Super Tuesday and there's going to be this appearance, why don't we wait or try to move it up, try to move it back, but just be okay with that date? I think that longstanding tradition in the Department of Justice has been thrown out the window. I mean, really, what they should be doing is delaying these trials until after the elections are done. What There's a big difference. The, the primary elections, caucuses, to determine the Republican nominee count as elections as any other, whether so, it's school board or anybody else. And to put a candidate, the leading candidate for the Republican nomination right now, on trial right before Super Tuesday... Um, I can understand why Trump and his lawyers are saying this is election interference. And it also plays into their narrative that if they can do it to him, they can do it to you, that he's really fighting and that the deep state is going after Donald Trump because they fear his second term uh, the most. All right, let's get to Atlanta. Former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows was in court today. He's one of the co-defendants in the Georgia racketeering case, also about the 2020 election. He's asked a judge to move his case to federal court. National correspondent Robert Sherman uh, is there in Atlanta. Hi, Robert. Hey there, Leland. A court is just wrapping up now as we speak, but an upbeat and positive Mark Meadows has been on the stand much of the day contending that, along with his legal counsel, that this case should be moved to the federal level, largely making the argument that the former White House chief of staff has been asking entirely within his scope as chief of staff, not in a campaign capacity. Here's why this is significant if this goes to the federal level. It potentially changes the jury pool. If this stays here in Fulton County, this is a very deep blue part of the state of Georgia. But if it goes to the federal level, now you bring in the Atlanta suburbs, which are a bit more purple, and a few more conservative voices in there to possibly be on the jury. But legal experts we talk to say cases like these typically don't get moved to the federal level. Take a listen to this. Removal to federal court in criminal cases is rare. It can happen, but the defendants need to be acting within the scope of their official duties as federal officers. So the Supreme Court hasn't directly addressed the issue in this case, but they've generally held that campaign activity is outside the scope of one's official duties. You hear that word scope, scope. That is the crux of really this entire hearing that's taking place today. The phone call with uh, with the secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, was that initiated by Mark Meadows in a White House capacity or was that initiated at the behest of a campaign attorney? That's an important distinction. Another one, when he traveled with the former president on the campaign trail, was he reimbursed by the campaign or was he not? Those are all the distinctions that the district attorney's office is trying to make here. Court just wrapped up. We're expecting to be back here again tomorrow with more testimony on the way, including from Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. We'll have more as we get it. Leland. All right. So much more to come. Robert Sherman, thank you. Back with the panel, along with former White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, also News Nation political contributor. Welcome back from the hike, sir. It's good to see you. Um, First question. Explain to us this difference and why it is so important. Uh, between a White House chief of staff acting in a political capacity versus acting in an official capacity. Yeah, it's going to, by the way, Leland, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me as always. Hello to the panel. But it's pretty basic, which is that if Mark Meadows was acting as the chief of staff, he's a federal official and he pretty much gets to go into federal court. If he's acting as a 
member of the Trump campaign that he's not protected by the same sort of federal veil that would attach to his work as the chief of staff. We all know this. Um, we had uh, campaign meetings um, at, at, in the Trump White House several times, and we would leave the Oval Office and go over into the residence. And that's where the president would get updated on various things like his polling data and while we're doing in various states, um, what political fundraising we're doing, et cetera, those types of things. So uh, we know these things. We know there's a dividing line between set, the work you're doing as the chief of staff and work you're doing that you happen to be the chief of staff, but you're also helping the president get reelected. So um, none of us were able to see the, uh, the, the testimony today. I, I thought uh, the reports uh, of what Mark was talking about made some sense. But I'm not sure he's going to be able to draw that bright line between um, being a federal official and being a campaign volunteer. What did you make of Robert Sherman's description of Mark Meadows in in court, three hours in federal court when you are a defendant uh, in in at least one racketeering trial? The the upbeat part was, uh, I don't know, surprising act in act. What was it? No, I mean, that's Mark. I mean, that's his personality. He's going to try and stay upbeat. I was interested in some of the legal commentary online questioning why he would even show up at all to testify. He's not required to do that today. Um, And really, the big question is, is Mark Meadows there to defend himself uh, at all costs? Is he there to help Donald Trump at all costs? Or is he sort of trying to to walk that razor's edge between, you know, not being too harsh on the president, but still making sure he he doesn't get in trouble himself. So I think that was really what a lot of the observers were looking for today. What was Mark Meadows's body language vis-a-vis the things he was saying about Donald Trump? Bill, how worried is Trump world? And I know I put that in as a very large group that there are so many people now that are entangled in these indictments from Trump world. There are a lot of people who know where the bodies were buried because they buried them. And Donald Trump, while he is demands loyalty, is not famous for sending loyalty the other way. We understand he's not paying everybody's legal fees. How worried are they that one, two, three people flip and that's the ballgame? Look, I think anytime you have indictments stemming out of a political campaign, everybody's worried, right? Because there's a lot of people there that are actually indicted down in Georgia uh, and other places where they don't have the means to pay the lawyers to defend themselves and have their own best interests at heart. I think there's one individual who was indicted who is actually still sitting in jail because he wasn't Mm -hmm. able to post bond. Now, that is somebody who is really in a bad way right now. Um, And chances are some of the people who were indicted were indicted because they wouldn't flip and help the prosecution. And Mm -hmm. so I think that has to be concerning. But I think, you know, there's going to be a couple of of road marks coming up here. The first one is the Mark Meadows hearing that we just had today. But one of the defendants um, has actually asked for an October trial uh, within two months. Uh, to try and get that out of the way. Those are two events that I think are going to pull the curtain back so we can either see the strength or the weakness of the Georgia case. All right. Uh, Real real quick um, on this point, Mick Mulvaney, help us understand the former president's thinking. Got a ton of money in the super PAC, raises a ton of money. Julia made the point he just raised $7 million. Isn't the cheapest return on investment you're ever going to get is paying your co-defendants legal bills? Um, yes, no. Donald Trump doesn't like spending money on other, on other people. He, he just doesn't. <laughs> we had people during the first, um, uh, I remember the first impeachment. Uh, one of the things that really stuck in my, in my crawl the whole time was we had folks 
uh, in the administration who are not getting any help at all from the Trump team for their legal fees uh, on that. They weren't. It's not like he would write a check, but you could have tried to raise money into a legal fund for some of these younger people who had to testify at that first impeachment. So, no, Donald Trump, um, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, Leland. His concept of loyalty is different. Um, then most folks, this concept of loyal is you be loyal to me and I'll let you be loyal to me. That's sort of the way it works out. Um, and <laughs> it, it, it's it's going to create some difficulties. I think it could create difficulties, but I've never been a fan of paying other people's legal fees anyway, generally, because I think it creates that 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 hint of bias in a witness, which you don't want. So uh, there's there's really no no good outcome here yet. But it does not surprise me that Donald Trump is not paying for some of these legal fees. All right, fair enough. Mick, stay with us. Former President Trump's legal troubles are one reason some Republicans argue he should not be the nominee. John Bolton, former national security advisor to Trump, is one of those Republicans and with us now. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, it's good to see you, sir. Thank you. I, I think about what Julia Manchester said, which is that from the mugshot, the campaign raised more than $7 million. That's more than some of the Republicans who are running have raised in the entire cycle. I why is it that his legal troubles make it that he is such a flawed candidate as compared to before? Well, it befuddles me why anybody would give a billionaire money to pay their own legal bills. I mean, uh, uh, people who worry about whether poor Donald Trump's going to have enough money for campaign purposes and legal bills, uh, he's a gazillionaire. Ask him. He'll tell you uh, frequently. Uh, he can spend a little of his own money. I, I think it's very disturbing that in what I always thought of as a political party based on principle, that so many people seem attracted to an individual almost regardless of what he does. And if I could figure out a way to break through that, then then I would be more confident we could stop Trump from being renominated. But reality is what it is. We're not having much success at this point. That that at least on paper right now appears to be. If you look at if you look at the polling, um, you met with Brian Kemp, uh, governor of Georgia, earlier uh, in the cycle to, to talk about about these matters. People have talked about Brian Kemp getting in or Glenn Youngkin getting in as sort of this breath of fresh air. Would it not be better for Republicans such as yourself to get to the people who are currently running for president and try to get some of them to drop out and at least give the the never Trump or non Trump GOP base a chance to coalesce around one candidate rather than remain so fractured? Well, I think uh, there was a Wall Street Journal editorial about, I guess, 10, 12 days ago that uh, that made the point uh, very persuasively that this first debate gives the party an opportunity to cull the field fairly substantially. And I, I think that process should get underway. Uh, I think Mayor Suarez of Miami, for example, was... Uh, was uh, courageous enough to say before the debate, if you don't make it on the debate stage, you should withdraw. So I assume he's going to be withdrawing soon. And, and for those who really, uh, after months of campaigning, are stuck at basically the same place in the polls where they started, uh, uh, you go out gracefully now and don't uh, drag it out and make it painful when you finally do have to uh, withdraw. What do you make um, Vivek Ramaswamy's rapid rise, both in the polls and sort of in the general conversation, um, to say that his worldview and yours would be polar opposites um, would be an understatement uh, in terms of both how you all view the world. Do you take him seriously? And, and how is it that the Republican Party itself is so split on such fundamental foreign policy issues? Well, I think the party is less split than people uh, people think. 
uh, and and I think in in large part the the problem is due to Donald Trump. So I I view this virus of isolationism that's gotten loose in the party as largely not entirely but largely due to Trump. And I think defeating Trump goes a long way toward defeating that. Huh. All right, Mr. Ambassador, it's good to see you as always. Thank you. We appreciate um, the insights. Looking forward to seeing you soon, sir. Back uh, now with the panel, Julia Manchester. I, John Bolton sort of offered this hope that this was going to be a culling of the field. I, I guess whether Francis Suarez drops out is interesting yeah. to, to us. I'm not sure anybody would really notice whether he was in or out. Right. Have you heard seriously of any, you know, we're talking Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, None of those people are thinking. Not even Asa Hutchinson's thinking of dropping out. No, no. In fact, Nikki Haley's team last week saw, you know, a bump in interest, I would say, from her debate performance. She had a very good performance on stage, and she's gotten a lot of positive coverage from that. So I don't see any indication that she's going to drop out. In terms of the others, maybe Francis Suarez, you know, maybe, I don't know, Larry Elder, Perry Johnson. I haven't gotten any indication that they will. So this isn't going to narrow any time soon. I think there is a hope, but all of these candidates are really in it for the long term. Campaigns don't end until the money runs out. Right. So especially given what's going on with Trump and people trying to figure out where that's going to land, whether there's going to be an appetite for a second candidate, you're going to see a lot of campaigns have a couple of staff rely on earned media and hang around as long as they can, just kind of waiting to see how the field plays out. Yeah, look, and you've got got some candidates who have a couple, one or two billionaire benefactors who they don't have to drop out. The money effectively. Tim Scott. Tim Scott, yeah. 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 Exactly. This, I was going to you, you brought up the point of earned media. There is, there seems to be a divide in the Republican Party of candidates who will take as much media as they can possibly get, uh, and then there is a few uh, of these candidates who you would think would be on every TV show they could possibly be on, who are actively eschewing interviews. What do you make of that? Can you think of any TV shows that they're <laughs> eschewing that they should be shooing? Anybody? Any shows in particular? Perhaps. This one, or maybe it could balance. be. It could maybe, be. These are, all, these are all. These are all shows. Right. These are all good opportunity. No, um, look. Uh, if you are, I, I think coming out of that debate, Nikki Haley did herself a world of good, mm-hmm. right? She really helped herself, and Tim Scott laid an egg, right? He needed a good. He needed to have a good showing. He tried to have a good showing. He failed. Uh, and that will hurt him, and that's helped her. Even Mike Pence, Mike Pence had a really even good day. Very, even old yes. Mike Pence had a little, got a little bump, doing a little better. Um, so this is enough to keep it going. The danger of what I'll call Yunkinism for Republicans is, then we've talked about that here before, which is there's always that other thing just over the horizon. We don't have to settle. I don't have to choose one of these imperfect beings. There's a great Brian Kemp or a Glenn Youngkin just out there over the horizon, so I don't have to settle for second best. This fallacy of choice problem, this collective action problem that Republicans face is real. Um, and marry your candidate. <laughs> well, I mean, no, the, the, the marry your candidate and fallacy of choice. These yeah. are two things I was not ready for at five o'clock <laughs> the, on Monday afternoon. The, the, <laughs> but, the, but the point here is, it's not time for the winnowing of the field. It's going to start. I mean, love, love, love you, Doug Burgum. Yeah. Uh, love you, Asa Hutchinson. They're not. They're not affecting the race. Uh, but it is the stretch between now and Thanksgiving that will will clarify and solidify things in the Republican field. Uh, we'll give Mick Mulvaney the last word on this. Mick, you're down in South Carolina, which arguably right now is the yeah. most important state in the country uh, politically. To the two big names that, that Chris mentioned, uh, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, where are we? Yeah. 
pretty good. In fact, I, I got to disagree with, uh, with, with Starwalt on the Tim Scott thing. I actually think Tim did that by design. I think his, I get all of these folks oh. emails before. No, no, seriously. I get the emails beforehand. I get the emails afterwards. I think, I think Nikki did well. I think Pence did really well. I think Tim did what he wanted to do, which is he's trying to make himself out to be the really good guy who is in it for the long haul because he does have the financial backing. I think he's waiting for other folks to drop out. But very quickly, the name uh, Brian Kemp came up. I, I think it is coming up in the wrong sort of context. I don't think he's a viable presidential candidate, even more than Glenn Youngkin is. What have they got that we already have? don't already have in, in the race already? The Brian Kemp angle here is whether or not He's in a position to pardon Donald Trump because those charges in Georgia are state charges. They're not federal charges. So even if Donald Trump becomes president and in theory pardons himself from the federal crimes, he cannot pardon himself or no one can pardon him from a federal office against those state crimes. But would Brian Kemp be in a position to do that? I think that's a discussion that needs to take place. Magic Eight Ball says outlook poor for Trump pardon from Kemp. I think you're right. I think you're right. I have to say that I know that's what Tim Scott wanted to do. And he was trying to do that. He was trying to be cool. He was trying to be nice. But he did flub the lines when he was in there and he had those little minutes of talk time that he had to get on and engage. He didn't execute. I'm not saying it's knocking him out of the race, but I am saying he didn't deliver with the kind of magnetism that he's become famous for. And next month, he's going to have to do a better job. I, I might go one more on this. He doesn't really seem to be enjoying the process. Well, who would enjoy? I've I've organized a presidential yeah, debate. Who would? What, yeah. what sick person <laughs> would enjoy? I don't mean the debate as the president. Yeah, exactly. Torture. Okay. It's a tough crowd around here. <laughs> Nick, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Hopefully, Luke. up here in D.C. Coming up, Trump's GOP debate snub will hit cost him. Uh, really interesting. So far, it hasn't. Will that change? We'll see you in a minute. for all America. Tonight on Cuomo, only on News Nation. All right, welcome back. A new poll about GOP presidential candidates. And get used to a new poll. One comes out of just about every day. Emerson College in Boston finds former President Donald Trump lost six percentage points since Emerson's pre-debate poll. Trump still leads with 50%. Nikki Haley jumped five points uh, and is currently tied with former Vice President Mike Pence, who saw a four-point increase Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie gained two percentage points. Vivek Ramaswamy down a point. Uh, all right, our poll guru, Chris Steyerwald. Mm. Um, can we yet say that anyone is cutting into Donald Trump's formidable lead? Well, uh, contrary to what I think the conventional wisdom out of the debate said, this poll at least shows Ronnie D getting a little uh, bit back from Trump. We remember that Ron DeSantis lost all of that early vote share that he had uh, to Trump, right? So February DeSantis versus July DeSantis, that vote share, almost all of it, except for a couple of points, went back to Trump. And here we see a couple of points maybe coming back Trump's direction. The challenge for DeSantis is this. The There's rest, only one? The, <laughs> the, the, the rest of the Republican field... Uh, is not going anywhere right now. And when you see Nikki Haley improving, you see Tim Scott doing fine. You see even Mike Pence getting a point or two. When you see those folks getting encouragement from the debate, the, the way that we have to think about this debate and debates in general, 
they, th there's what happens in the debate. And millions and millions of people watch the debate. No doubt attitudes were shifted. But the number one thing that these debates do is they act as a marker, a signal for voters that the time for deciding is coming, right? And so you have all the people who have only given passing thought to actually having to cast a ballot of the 33 million or so Republicans who are going to cast ballots. This debate was the first cue. Okay, it's happening. And this will, you'll continue to see shifts in this. And I, it is absolutely possible Donald Trump will go pen to post as the front runner in the Republican nomination. George W. Bush did it in 2000. It can be done. It's rare, but it can be done. But he will not go through without losing part of his vote share between now and Iowa. That's he's already maxed out. He's already he already is where he is until he becomes the nominee, at which point the uh, party would consolidate. But for now, there's going to be entropy. And he's got so much of the vote. He's really got nowhere to go but down a little bit. Well, and that's always a hard place to be right to be in that in the leading position, right. because number one, it's like, you know, you've got something you don't want to screw it up. Right. But number two is no good no good news can happen for you between now and Iowa right that's a, that's that's right so for trump going out to such a big number being at 53 54% of the vote 40 points ahead in some polls of his closest competitor that's a wonderful place to be but again you can only really go down from there even if you just go down a little bit even even if you end up winning right. by 10 points and we saw something similar to this from uh with republicans from with bob dole in 1996 Huge commanding lead in the early going. And he came in by the skin of his teeth. He finished. He got the nomination. But it was a real close call. Trump has to guard against and be aware of the fact that downward momentum is just as important in the minds of voters as upward momentum is. People want to get on board somebody that's winning. But Trump, who's talked endlessly about, oh, I've got 53, 54, this is my great huge percent. People are saying I have the best percentages. As those numbers come down a little bit, it will... Uh, undercut voters People want to jump off faster almost than they want That's to. That's right. Don't be Bob Dole uh, could be the theme of this segment. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, COVID yeah. cases on the rise. Does back to school mean back to mask mandates? Yeah, I'm sure there's some people who have some thoughts about that. We'll see you in a minute. All right, welcome back. 48 hours away now as Florida prepares for a major Category 3 hurricane to make landfall on the Gulf Coast. A state of emergency is now declared in 46 counties. Governor Ron DeSantis is back in Florida and says he's been in contact with President Biden. As we get into the late afternoon, early evening, it's going to start to get really, really nasty. I have spoken with the president. I've spoken with FEMA Director Criswell, and then I've spoken with a number of local officials uh, throughout Florida's Gulf Coast, and, and everyone understands the significance of this event, and everybody is willing to work together to uh, achieve the best possible outcome for the residents of Florida. All right, so he has put his presidential campaign on hold to deal with the coming tropical storm and hurricane. All right, to the panel, Chris Dyerwald. How, how much can a governor dealing with a hurricane appear presidential in nature? Well, first of all, I want to say that Ron DeSantis should always have a sign language uh, person with him because he, as an Italian-American in politics, does not talk with his hands enough. And I finally felt gratified that there was somebody behind him giving a little something, a little emotional context to his words back there. I thought that was good. Um, this is... Uh, 
Good if you don't screw it up for Ron DeSantis politically. Uh, hurricanes are a great opportunity for Florida governors uh, to show their executive capacity, to show that they can do this. Uh, if you can respond to these twin crises and, and get that all uh, done right, you're on the national stage, mm-hmm. you're making news, you're being an executive. If things go wrong, it will be devastating, right? If there, if there is a bungled state response to this, it would be devastating. To, to, be, to be fair... Um, as somebody who went through this, my parents uh, lost their home in the last last hurricane season. The response by Florida last last year and the last go around of this, with when Fort Myers Beach and everything else was crushed, was top notch. I mean, everyone really has to give give Ron DeSantis. Mr. Hopkins, I want to ask you this though: If you're Joe Biden, who just completely bungled Maui, we can sort of reasonable people can agree on that. Got shellacked even by usually friendly press on it. And now you're going to have a split screen, right, of Joe Biden, who's going to be at the White House or doing whatever he's going to be doing, and Ron DeSantis, who's out there day in, day out, unfatigued, with people, acting as the comforter-in-chief. That sort of focuses things for Democrats, not where they want the focus to be, doesn't it? Well, let me say... Ron DeSantis has never been known as the uh, emotional yeah, that's yeah. true. And so I think this is going to be a real risk for him. The technical side of it, he's Florida governor. Florida knows how to deal with hurricanes. I spent most of my career in Florida. Hurricanes are just something every year you deal with. He's going to know how to deal with that. But it's going to be comforting people. It's going to be when property's destroyed, when lives are ruined. Is he going to be able to show that emotional connection? We know Joe Biden can. He may have had some flubs recently, but that's one thing that's been his strength. The question now is Ron DeSantis going to be able to show some humanity? Because if he can't, that could be the end of the campaign. I actually think Ron DeSantis and Joe Biden have a history of both responding to disasters in Florida, whether it was the Surfside building collapse or Hurricane Ian Mm -hmm. last year. A good history of coming together and putting aside politics, at least publicly. This image is stuck in my mind after the tower collapse of uh, DeSantis and Biden sitting next to each other, thanking each other for their support. They did it again during Hurricane Ian. They spoke earlier today on the phone. So I think there's a real team effort. And I think that plays well for both of them politically, that they're able to, uh, you know, set that aside and, you know, as go long forward. as he doesn't hug him. <laughs> yes. No, Christy <laughs> hug. must not hug. You Where is Chris Christie? Hug. No hugs. <laughs> I think these two events give DeSantis really an opportunity that he hasn't had on the campaign trail to really appear presidential. I mean, if he can handle this hurricane in the same way that he did uh, the last one that handled, that happened, um, I think it really gives him an opportunity to shine before the national press. But I, I think it's equally important that he handles the Jacksonville shooting in the same manner. Um, I think that's an incredibly important event that calls for strong leadership to heal that community. And he presents himself with a great opportunity if he can do it. And Nikki Haley, very famously, with a exactly. racially motivated shooting in South Carolina, right. this was an oppor- this was an opportunity for her to gain real credibility in the eyes, uh, bipartisan way. And yeah, I think that's exactly right. DeSantis's biggest problem is a week later they're going to have the arraignments, so everyone's going to be forgetting about this. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. As you said, I can't remember who it said, is that Trump sucks all the oxygen out. Uh, All right, meantime, school is back. Uh, It's that time of year, and so is COVID-19. A new variant is causing the United States to see an increase in cases. Deja vu all over again. As of August 12th, the CDC has reported an average of more than 3,000 COVID hospitalizations. That is an increase of 24% from two weeks ago, although uh, sort of depending on how you look at these charts, it is uh, shockingly low compared to what we saw during the pandemic. Uh, the numbers are at the lower than peak levels. Are They're also way lower than virtually any levels that we've measured. Mask mandates, school closures, and other protocols are making a comeback. 
Obviously, you've got the negative impact that we've seen this have on students. The National Assessment of Education says the average reading and math test scores for 13-year-olds are down four points and nine points, respectively. All right, back with the panel. I, I have not seen the White House be nearly as embracing of mask mandates and shutdowns and lockdowns and pushing vaccines as they were a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we have vaccines now and people have gotten those first round, second rounds of boosters, it changes what the calculus is. Obviously, Democrats don't want to have a conversation about a shutdown again. That's something that's not going to pull well or really be good messaging for Democrats. But I think that there's a fine line. As parents send their children back, they do want to ensure that they're safe, that they're healthy and they're not bringing things home. And so I think that the White House would be smart to show a balanced approach as they talk about this. Right, and it comes as, you know, there's also concern about flu season that's approaching, and the flu also uh, causes illness and has potential to kill people. So I think as we, you know, move on with time with COVID, COVID's almost turning into a flu-like phenomenon, um, you know, or a cold-like phenomenon, where it's something we're just going to have to learn to live with, stay home when we're sick, come back when we're better. Um, But, you know, for the White House, like Michael said, very fine line there. Yeah, I can't help, Chris, but think that there's a lot of parents who say, yes, there's a point of being healthy, but there's also uh, a known effect of what masking and remote learning does to kids. So um, the political bases of each party have really wreaked havoc on the mainstream efforts uh, of both to deal with coronavirus. So the hardcore anti-mask, anti-vaccine people inside the Republican Party were a big part of how Trump screwed up on several occasions inside coronavirus response, if we remember the light and the bleach and the disinfectant <laughs> and stuff. Uh, so part, part of the Republican core voters' resistance made it harder for the Trump administration and for Trump to address this question. For Biden, it was the reverse. Teachers unions particularly, but across the Democratic coalition, there were big interest groups that pressured hard to keep lockdowns in place, keep kids out of school and do all of that thing. And all you have to you can ask Terry McAuliffe, right, who is not the governor of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Why is Terry McAuliffe not the governor of Virginia? Because he couldn't get out. He couldn't get the teachers unions out of the way. They couldn't reopen enough schools. They couldn't get enough stuff done. If that stuff comes back, if the Democratic base starts making demands about lockdowns, about masks, about closing schools and doing that stuff. <clears throat> I cannot think of any single issue that could do more to to harm Democrats' chances to take the House, to hold the Senate, and to win the presidency again than if we go from, and I think Julia is 100% right, this is an endemic threat now, Absolutely. right? It's mm-hmm. part of life as we know it, like the flu. It's dangerous for sick people. And we have to be careful and thoughtful of our neighbors about it. But there's no going back to pandemic status no. because if we do, and the reason it won't is that it would just such it would just be such a loser for Democrats, and they know that clearly now. We'll never shut down again. That's it. Yeah. I don't think. I mean, is there a political appetite for masks again? I think there's a conversation about uh, publicly, you know, whether we go back to people wearing them on airplanes in certain places if they feel sick. But I think it's by choice. They're no longer. Yeah, there's no, yeah, man- mandates just don't seem to work no. anymore. All right. Coming up, the border crisis is now being felt in New York City. It's been being felt there for a long time. But now we're seeing violent protests over it. Why is there violent protests about immigrants in New York?
The Supplemental Security Income Program provides monthly payments to help meet basic needs, like putting food on the table, paying the rent, or buying new shoes for growing feet. You may qualify if your income and financial resources are low and you are 65 or older, or an adult or child with a disability or who is blind. Call 1-800-772-1213 or go to ssa.gov SSI to start to apply. Produced by Social Security at U.S. taxpayer expense. When you're diagnosed with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, you just want to feel better. Steroids help get my symptoms under control, but they come with problems and long-term risks. I need to look out for my future health. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation changed everything. They encouraged me to take action and even help me find a specialist. We now have a plan that works for today and tomorrow. Don't put off finding an answer. Spill your guts. Learn more at spillyourguts.org. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner. They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit adoptuskids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. I thought it was a rash, but my doctor said it was a tick bite. Ticks can spread Lyme disease and other illnesses leading to chronic health issues. My brother was always having asthma flare-ups. A roach problem at home was causing it. Allergens left behind by roaches and rodents are a major driver of asthma attacks. When I had a fever and body aches, I never thought it was West Nile virus. Mosquitoes breed in standing water and can spread serious diseases. Get the facts at PestWorld.org. A public service message brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. Take the News Nation audio stream wherever you go in the News Nation app or tell your Alexa, play News Nation. To get News Nation on your screen, go to joinnn.com. When it comes to a gun suicide attempt, all it takes is a moment. My son Ricky took his life by the use of a firearm. It broke me and I contemplated suicide. My grandson, I was going to have to be here for him. I still own my firearm. I keep it in a safe because I want to keep my grandson and myself safe. Store your guns, locked, unloaded, and away from ammo. Hear more safe stories at endfamilyfire.org. Brought to you by Brady and the Ad Council. My daughter was diagnosed with a rare malignant rhabdoid tumor on the spine. They sent her straight to St. Jude. My hope was gone. But when you get there, everyone's like, hey, we're not going to give up. And when you see other people not giving up on your child, that makes all the difference in the world. When I found out I didn't have to pay, I was just grateful. They saved my baby's life. Finding cures, saving children. Learn more at stjude.org. Everyone has a community, a neighborhood, school, kids' teams, where you worship, work, work out, or any other place or group where you choose to belong. Communities can provide support when you need it, and even when you don't know you do. Like when it comes to preventing underage drinking and other substance use. Community members can be your eyes and ears when you're not with your kids and alert you to signs of potential problems. Learn more at talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov. Maybe he was born with his witty humor. Some people bring joy wherever they go. Some whenever they go. Or as a frontier newspaper reporter. There's nothing to be learned from the second kick of a mule. Maybe he got his insights from being a riverboat captain. Never argue with a fool. 
Onlookers may not be able to tell the difference. Wherever he went, Mark Twain found humor all around. Humor. Pass it on. From PassItOn.com. Did you know that you can listen to News Nation live on your Amazon Echo device? Try it now. Just say, Alexa, launch News Nation. Welcome to News Nation. News Nation on the go. Streaming audio now on Amazon Alexa. All right, welcome back to The Hill. Border cities, as we've been telling you for a long time, aren't the only ones impacted by the migrant crisis. Violent protests erupted in New York City outside the mayor's official residence. This follows the openings of over 200 shelters the more than 100,000 migrants who've arrived from the southern border. The panel is with us now. All right, Michael Sir Hopkins, there's been so many variations of this administration's view of the border. Where are we now and what is the risk going forward? Yeah, I think whether it's Democrat or Republican administrations, we put Band-Aid approaches on immigration reform. I think Do you say comprehensive immigration reform right now? I was thinking <laughs> it's comprehensive, but we do, I mean, look, we're going to have to have some sort of immigration reform because we're not going to be able to get through any appropriations bills or anything like that until we actually really address the immigration concern we're having at the border or whether it's dealing with fentanyl or whether it's New York. I mean, the systemic issues that we're seeing now uh, coming from the lack of immigration reform are affecting everything in our government and society. All right, Chris, does things ever get so bad that Congress actually has to do what the people want? Um, not as long as we have this FACACTA primary system that we have for the major parties choosing yeah. their nominees. Uh, we know uh, that, and the research is utterly unambiguous, we have a broad consensus in the United States about immigration, 65-70% of Americans, and I'm not talking recently, I'm saying now for decades, have agreed what they want. They want strict enforcement of the law and they want a pathway to citizenship for people who are here illegally but haven't committed other crimes. That's a winner again and again and again. But you try saying that in a Republican or Democratic primary because one part or the other is going, to, there's going to be somebody standing to your right or your left that says, no, 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 no. We don't have to give anything to get what we want. And I promise you total victory. And what you see in the dysfunctional immigration system that this, this country has right now is the most obvious, evident, clear example that you could ever ask for of how our primary system is really killing the politics and the functionality of this country. It's a mess. People are unhappy with it, and the parties are not able to respond to it because of this goofy way to pick nominees. It's easier to run against the issue, though. That's, That's the problem. Right. It's, it's, it's like more Yasser, valuable not solved. Yasser Arafat famously said to Bill Clinton, like, we'll never get peace with Israel and Palestine because it's easier yeah. and more beneficial to keep things broken. The same is true with immigration. We could fix this in the stroke of a pen, but we're not going to because it's easier for Republicans and Democrats to continue to fight over this. Governors Abbott and DeSantis have finally brought the immigration problem front and center in sanctuary states and sanctuary cities, enforcing them to finally deal with the problem that their residents are dealing with on a daily basis, especially Governor Abbott. If you talk to anybody from the border area or even some of the large uh, cities down in Texas, they are overwhelmed um, with this problem, and there's no sign of it letting up. It really is a national problem. We have to secure this border. The fentanyl crisis is real. Richmond, Virginia, fentanyl is one of the leading killers in Richmond, Virginia. And you also start looking at the uptick in crime and the homeless problem that it's creating in New York City and others. Finally, the New York Democrats who have declared sanctuary is our rule of thumb on this issue are begging Biden for help. And we'll see what happens. 
Hmm. See what happens. <laughs> well, on that way optimistic to note, way to take a stand. Yeah. Prediction. Okay. <laughs> uh, two years since the deadly attack at Kabul International Airport, it was a suicide bombing that killed 13 U.S. service members. Questions still remain about the U.S.'s chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. But now, news stations obtained documents from the Pentagon. The detail major planning and communications failures. Elizabeth Vargas uh, is here with that. More tonight on Elizabeth Vargas Reports. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, Leland. Yeah, we've got some new documents that show not only did we've already know that military intelligence had been tipped off that a suicide attack might be imminent in those chaotic days with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. But we now know that they knew uh, exactly where it was being happy, being planned and plotted and, 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 and orchestrated at a hotel not far from uh, the airport, and that it asked the Taliban to raid that hotel. The Taliban did not. And that then there were orders and requests uh, for a drone strike on that hotel, uh, orders for a strike which were denied by high-ranking military because the Taliban would not agree to it or would be, quote, displeased. We're going to weigh into more uh, of what these documents reveal and talk to a member of the Gold Star, one of the Gold Star families of with 13 servicemen who were killed that day. They had been outraged, demanding a lot of answers about what happened. And this is not going to make them happy to hear these new details tonight, Leland. We'll delve into it with them in just a few moments. All right. Stunning that you said that the that the reason that they didn't conduct a drone strike was the Taliban. Um, it says a lot about yeah. where, where we were in Afghanistan. All right, Elizabeth, thank you very much. Elizabeth Vargas reports tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern, coming up. A clash over climate change at Burning Man. There you go. Police are now holding climate change protesters at gunpoint. Is this how you deal with people blocking highways? Following last week's primetime GOP debate, two of the top contenders join Chris live as Vivek Ramaswamy and Chris Christie share their visions for all America. Tonight on Cuomo, only on News Nation. Uh, you missed this over the weekend, some pretty incredible video out of Nevada, where climate change activists were blocking highways to the Burning Man Festival. There's a lot of irony in all of this. The protesters has caused a miles-long traffic jam and then the demonstration didn't quite go their way. Okay, so <laughs> that just looks like me on a normal Friday. Yeah, you know what? And that soundbite didn't quite go our way either. But but what it was, and this is we said there's miles long protests out at Burning, miles long uh, backups out at Burning Burning Man. Then there are miles-long backups on 495 around the Beltway here right. as climate change protesters. They, they block highways and on and on and on. Uh, as opposed to here, where the police sort of wait for them to get hot to need to use the bathroom, in Nevada, they just blew through the blockade and ran the blockade over and crushed all of the protesting devices that they had put in the middle of the street. But no protesters. No protesters were crushed, but they okay. were arrested at gunpoint. Okay. And they opened the road and said, thank you very much. Frontier justice out there. Yes. There you go. <laughs> 
Try that. I guess, I guess that's what you get out west versus in D.C. We're to take a different approach. I don't know. I'm from D.C. Some here. of those protesters, you you picked the wrong side of D.C. That is true. Yeah. That yeah. is, that is true. Pick that <laughs> northwest. Yeah, right? <laughs> you on the other side of Anacostia. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a no. We tried this. We, we talked about this because in a lot of big cities in America, you've had these street takeovers where gangs come or, or groups come and block off all the, all the intersections and then do donuts and everything else. And in Georgia, the local police will not... Uh, go and arrest anybody because they don't want to chase anybody on and on and on. Georgia State Patrol says we're all in and we'll drive right in and start arresting people. I'm wondering if there's starting to be a change in policing as it relates to this stuff. Well, I think certainly we've seen it about uh, the crimes, the the flash mob crimes and shoplifting and other things. I think that uh, the the effort to uh, abate through ignoring, uh, there's not going to be public support for that in any community. And I think you're probably right. There's, there's a good way. That is what a way to end the show. Say, that has never happened. You only have five ready, more seconds. As you get ready to watch On Balance, just remember this. I said Leland is probably right. Probably. 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 Vargas is next. <laughs> a faculty member is dead.